my life when I joined the Foo Fighters versus my life now is just like, it's unrecognizable, you know? I don't have any other experience like that in my life. It's, it's like your whole adult existence, practically. Then you just look back and you just go, fuck, man. Like, we have covered so much ground. It's just wild. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. On each episode of the game show Jeopardy, the guests get a brief introduction that describes who they are and what they do. A teacher from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A data input specialist from Des Moines, Iowa. Their entire lives are distilled into a brief summation that's simple and digestible for the audience. Today's guest, if he ever appeared on the show, could quite easily rest on his laurels and flaunt his title as the guitarist for one of the most successful rock bands on the planet. But he's consciously avoided having his identity and sense of self being so reductively tied to just one aspect of his life. Instead, he's tried to focus on the labels that he's found to be more important. Father. Husband. Surfer. It's been a period of heavy self-reflection for him. He's learned the hard way that success and fame don't necessarily insulate you from adversity. In the past year, he's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but he's also had to endure the tragic death of close friend and bandmate Taylor Hawkins. Recently, he released several new songs that will be included in his upcoming solo album. The project is quite a departure from his work with the Foo Fighters in both style and scale. But despite it all, he's found the experience of being a frontman rather than a supporting player to be uniquely rewarding. So what's it like traveling on a private jet to play a sold-out show at Wembley Stadium one week and then performing a solo show the following week where you have to load in your own gear and tune your own guitar? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with this accounting school dropout come rock star who recently played himself in a low-budget horror movie with the rest of his band. Today, songwriter, podcast host, surfer, and Santa Barbara native, Mr. Chris Shiflett. <laughs> i'm good yeah let's hop right. in chris shiflett thanks for sitting down man good to see you good to see you too buddy um so you know you were the very first guest here on the plug podcast and now you're our very first repeat guest here on the podcast so congratulations nice. on that. wow um, i didn't realize i was your first guest it Epic. wasn't recorded first but we I, I think we dropped yours first for oh nice wh- for nice. whatever whatever political and reason. i'm back I'm back. Um, it's funny. I feel like we're in some sort of weird, incestuous meta podcast circle because of, I know. you've been on my podcast twice. You were just on Surf Splendor, which I've yes. been on twice. You were on Benji Weatherly's podcast, which I've been on. Mm-hmm. Benji Weatherly's been on my podcast. And then yes. you your podcast, Walking the Floor. So yes, um, we should really work on getting some more guests. <laughs> I know, you know, it was, it's funny. Like when you, when you connected me 
with uh, with David over at Surf Splendor. It was weird to go do his podcast because I've been listening to it since I think since you were on it the first time. I think that's how I discovered his podcast was through you. And so you know, it's one of those weird things where like you're so familiar with somebody's voice from listening to him all these years that I felt like yeah. he's like an old friend. But like yeah. that was the first time I ever met him. You know what I mean? Well, it was really funny, like listening to the different levels of preparation. I, I listened to two podcasts that you're on back to back. And, uh, well, it was, I'll say David. David's was like, he's always extremely well-prepared, like a yeah. really nice narrative arc. The one right yeah. after that, I won't say his name, but uh, the first question was, so how do you pronounce your name? It's shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, come on. I think I know the one that you're referring to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a little looser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm curious. I mean, you, you've, you've been doing your podcast for, for quite some time and, um, you know, I'm a big fan. I've listened to it for a while. Like has, has been being a guest on other podcasts or doing, doing a lot of press for your music. Has it made you a better podcast host or has being a podcast host helped with being like a guest? How does that work? For sure. It's probably made me a worse guest because now I find like uh, oftentimes I start asking the people questions that are interviewing me. Um, you know, it's like, but like when I first started doing it, it was really like I had to learn how to interview people. And I was absolutely motivated by years of doing interviews with people that would do no prep that knew nothing about. And like, you know, I get it too, because it's not, not like every, you know, people are probably doing interviews all day long. How much can they really know about each individual person? So, but like, it was really, I, I think the big motivation was just to not ask like the same handful of questions to other people that yeah. I tend to get asked, you know, cause it seems like every time you put out a record, you just get asked the same shit over and over again. And most of it's like stuff that you've answered 8,000 times. So in my head, I'm always like, nobody needs to hear that answer again. I've told the story of auditioning for the Foo Fighters 8 million. It's yeah. very well documented. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, I have nothing to add. Press play. I'll be back in a minute, you know? Right. You know what I mean? And, and it's funny because as, as when I'm interviewing people, I can tell when they slip into their sort of well, uh, you know, rehearsed narrative and, you know, that's, I try to avoid that stuff. I mean, some stuff you just got to ask people, but I, I try, I just try to get people talking or try to figure out what people kind of would rather talk about, you know? Did, was there a learning curve to kind of figuring out, you know, when to interject or like how much leash to kind of give people? Cause it's a, it's a unique format, you know? I mean, like sometimes I'll have people and it's like, this dude's just been talking for eight minutes straight. Like, is that, is that okay? Yeah. Like, do I let him go yeah. do I interject? You know? And it's like, I think that's there's a learning curve to that. That's kind of the dream interview though. Isn't it? Like when somebody just goes, I remember when I interviewed Dwight Yoakam, like, I think I asked him two questions or something and he talked for an hour and a half, you know what I mean? It was like, great. And told all the stories you wanted to hear. But no, that's, that's a huge part of it is sort of, cause when I first started doing it, I would just talk over people and interrupt people and then you ruin their train of thought. And then, you know, and it's like, and it's, I, you know, I almost had to like relearn that when the Zoom thing happened, because even like what we're doing right now, there's just a little teeny bit of latency that trips you up a little bit where yeah. you think there's the pause to jump in. But I always try to remind myself that, you know, we're recording these things and I can always edit out space, but I can't fix when I step all over somebody's answer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I found like on doing these Zoom interviews, it's exactly opposite of what you think. I mean, your, your worst kind of childhood fear comes out when you're, when you're doing an interview, you're like, oh, well, I, I'm going to run out of questions and they're not going to be talking at all. And there's just going to be dead space. 
And it almost yeah. seems like it's just the opposite. Like something about the format, people tend to talk until you stop them. Like they ramble a right. lot more, you know, because <laughs> right. it's like in yeah. per- we've all been at that place where you're like, you're at a party and like maybe you got a couple drinks in you and you're telling a story. And then like halfway through, you realize you've totally lost the room, you know, but you don't, <laughs> right. you don't get yeah. that feeling on Zoom. So yeah. people just talk, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of funny. It's kind of, I think, I think the harder part about Zoom for me is that I feel like it's harder it's harder to get that like personal connection that that usually happens pretty quickly when you're sitting in a room with somebody. Yeah. You know, I feel like maybe on Zoom people are a little bit more guarded cuz I don't know. Maybe they maybe they think that there's like a bunch of other people just out of the shot or I don't know, you yeah. know what I mean? It's just there's something about it that's a just a little less personal. You know? uh, did you did you check out um, on on Apple Plus? There's this documentary series called 1971. Have you seen any of those? I just watched the first episode. That's funny. It's you ask. fucking so good. It's just like so you know. know that you know for 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 the listeners who don't know, it's it's it goes a little bit into culture and politics, but it's basically about these amazing albums that came out in 1971, which is a strange year because you always hear about 68 or the Summer of Love or like 77 and punk rock. Like, no one really talks about. 71, you know, but it's like Exile on Main Street, uh, Tapestry, Hunky Dory, Joni Mitchell's yeah. Blue. They had. Um, Is it the first John Lennon album, maybe? Yeah, first John Lennon album. And then they had. Kent um, State, like, all that stuff. All yeah. that stuff. And then, like, um, they had Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And then. Yes. Sly and the Family Stones, There's a Riot Going On. And I don't know if you watched this episode yet, but they had this clip from 71 of uh, Sly and the Family Stone on Dick Cavett. And oh, the performance. Wow. The performance was mind blowing. Like it was so good. And then without cutting to commercial or anything, they invited him to come over to sit on the on the couch. And he's unmistakably like out of his mind on cocaine. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and like, I mean, it's so obvious, like Dick even addresses it, but like they don't cut to yeah. commercial. They just kind of like he's making jokes on how he can't have this conversation or whatever. And it, it just made you realize how how loose these talk shows used to be, you know, and it's yeah. like people used to go on Carson because they just wanted to smoke cigarettes and talk to Johnny get, for get drunk. Minutes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's funny, man, that Dick Cavett show, every time I watch Dick Cavett show clips, it makes me sad for, for how dumb our country is now. Like, and I say that and I'm throwing myself under the bus too. I'm as dumb as anybody else. It's not judgment. Yeah. Um, but you know what I mean? Like the level of discourse, like when, when you see sort of what was just sort of commonplace entertainment on you know, network television in, in, you know, when, when we were babies was, it's just, it's so different now. You know, it's like, it's, it's like the polar opposite of like the Kardashian show or what, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's, what's interesting. Cause you look at it now and it's and the talk shows are just, they're just become this huge publicity machine and you have a right. six minute segment that's pre-produced. It's pre-interview. You have like your story, your quip, your plug, cut to commercial, you know? And right. I think that's, right. what's, I think that's what's so special about podcasts is it's almost like it's gone full circle. It's like this totally tiny long form conversation with a compelling person. You know? That's right. You are the Dick Cavett show, my friend. Well, it's funny you say that we've been dying to get Dick Cavett on the podcast and is he's just such a hero of mine. We've been like trying to reach out to his people. We haven't really found the right person yet. So if anyone out there knows Dick Cavett's people, please hit me uh, up. Seriously. <laughs> Where is Dick Cavett? We need him now. He, he used to, he had a Montauk presence. So I put, I put, I put an APB out to some of my Montauk people, but I guess he just sold his house. Now he's living in Connecticut as best I could surmise. 
Is he charging the um, charging the surf? He's like holding down the lineup at Montauk. <laughs> yeah, but the, the old, He's an enforcer the at Montauk. Yeah, that's regulator. kind of what he segued yeah. into. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is, but that is absolutely the appeal of podcasting, and that's it's like it's that's what people I think love about the whole format is it gets away from exactly what you're talking about the soundbite type of interviews. Yeah. Have you had any guests that really went off the rails on your podcast? <sighs> I've never really had one go completely off the rails. I mean, I've had people that, you know, that were less talkative than others, or you could tell didn't want to be there necessarily, or, or you know, all those kind of things. But no, I've never really had a, a like an awful one. I've never had anybody get mad at me. I've never like offended anybody. Nobody's ever why. I've never had one of those moments. I almost kind of like wish something like that would happen <laughs> you know, just to just experience it. There was one episode and I think we even talked about this. You had Jackson Brown on and it stuck out to me because it was so, it seems so off brand for what I thought he would be like. But I think at some point he started talking about like, like Caribbean women's asses or something. And I was just like, Yo, bro, read the room, read the world, dude. Like, <laughs> like now is not the time. Uh, you handled it well I, though. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I hope you I, don't I, get, get some collateral damage out of that, you know? I, 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 it's funny. I mean, I, I remember that too. Like, and I remember thinking like, like, wow, all right, man. So laying it down, keeping the 1978, man. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but he was rad. I mean, he was, no, he I'm was a huge so fan. Cool. That's like, why I was, I was, it just seems so out of character. It was very funny. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I remember I, I did have an, uh, uh, an older gentleman that will remain nameless that said some, some kooky stuff that I edited out because I thought like, you know, I don't know. You're going to do I just, him a I, favor. I don't want this guy to get like Twitter dog piled. And it's like, you know, an older dude. And it was definitely not in uh, keeping with the sort of modern uh, thinking on stuff. Was that vague enough? Yeah. I'll tell you when we get off who it was and what they said. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to start scrolling through my, my iTunes <laughs> trying to figure it out. Well, yeah. you know, with, with, with all this talk about how these conversations are often just a big ruse to provide a platform for guests to be able to plug their new project. Um, my producer tells me you have a new track out called Born and Raised. Yes. <laughs> yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> oh no, I couldn't possibly. Well, okay. If you, if you, if you insist. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been putting out um, some new music and, uh, and it's, it's a little convoluted. I have a whole album coming out or starting to come out pretty soon. That's, that's uh, one sort of 10 song piece of music that uh, that my friend Jaron from Cadillac 3 produced. So that'll be coming. We'll start dropping tracks from that later in the year. But I had also, around the same time that I started that, I went out to Nashville and recorded a couple songs with this producer named Vance Powell. And that was um, the song Long, Long Year that I put out a couple months ago, and then this song Born and Raised. So I had those sitting in the can. I knew they weren't going to be part of this record and I just liked them, so I wanted to put them out. So it's been really kind of an interesting thing because I put them out myself, just like, um, you know, like full indie style, which I hadn't done. I mean, I hadn't done that since, like, I had a band called Jackson United, which was like, a, you know, that was like the dark ages compared to now. Like, that was in, the last time I ever self-released music. It was like you printed up some CDs, you called, like, mom-and-pop distributors, tried to get them in record, you know, all that stuff you know, obviously the world has completely changed. So this has been really interesting to sort of go through the process of, of how to put your music out digitally and, 
and what and how to get the word out there and and what's sort of effective and and isn't effective and all that sort of stuff. But um, but it's it's been really cool. Like the release and the promotion aspect of it is definitely kind of like you know DIY, like kind of taking it back. What about the actual production? I mean, did you record on a, an old school kind of garage level, or was this like a Foo Fighters level production or somewhere in between? I mean, it's you know, it's 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 like uh, kind of the the Nashville style. Like we went in, we cut the two songs, cut the basic tracks in a day out at, at Vance's place out in Nashville. That's that definitely not like garage level. It's like you know a beautiful studio in Nashville. And um, so I flew out there, did that, cut some overdubs and some vocals the next day. Pretty much had most of what we were gonna need. But then I took those files home. And, you know, added a couple things here and there and tweaked some guitar stuff and, you know, kind of messed with it back home and then got it mixed. So like that's like the difference between the way that I record like my solo stuff, like the last several records that I've made, I've made out in Nashville and uh, and I go out there alone and play with, you know, like like uh, session musicians, ultimately, even though they're like people that are my friends and stuff, but like, you know, great players and and we just bang it out live in a room and overdub stuff afterwards. You know what I mean? We usually redo the vocals and, and add some some decoration, all that stuff. I'd say the difference between like that and how we make Foo Fighter records, you know, Foo Fighter records, we just have a much bigger budget. You know, you have you have the luxury of time to sort of like really you know, experiment and dial things in and change things and re-record stuff and all that sort of stuff. Like I I'm a little more hemmed in by sort of financial realities when it comes to my solo stuff. So it's a little more uh, throw and go, which I like, you know, like it's the beauty of, of recording with out in Nashville. It's just such a high level of, of musicianship out there. And you just play with these cats that are so good. And when you go out there, like I always kind of like demo my songs, but you go out there and you play your ideas that you've just been messing around with alone in your studio and you put it in the hands of all these great players and it just elevates everything and just be, it always surprises me what the end result is. You know, it's always better and like a lot better than what I went out there with. Yeah. Have you found like working with the foos when you have deep pockets like that or relatively unlimited budgets? Does that become an albatross at some point? I mean, do you get wrapped up to the fact that you're like, let's just get this lick and we're going to spend a week on this? I mean, is there ever a situation where there's albums where obviously you guys kind of dial it back and you kind of want to go back to the old days of just like, fuck, we don't have a lot of money. Let's get this done. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to say because we've we just every album's a little bit different. And, you know, the like the end result's always good. Like it. It would be interesting to see. I mean, Dave recorded the first Foo Fighter record on used tape by himself, basically. You know what I mean? He just recorded all. He put, laid down the drums and the bass and the guitar and the, you know he just did it all himself, not even thinking he was making a record. You know, um, and people love that record and it's a great record. So like, I mean, it would be fun to see what would come if we just like we're like, okay, we have one week, man. We got to just bang this shit out. It would yeah. be very different for sure. You know, we'll probably never do that because, <laughs> you know, it's because it's like it is also like there's something to be said for being able to sit there and go like, hmm, <laughs> I don't like the the way my guitar is breaking up. Let's yeah. get, you know, 30 more marshals in here and see what they do. You know, I mean, there is there is some that's 
I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of different ways to make a record and that's certainly a, it's a luxury, but it's a, but it's, but it's nice yeah. Yeah, as well. Um, so the song Born and Raised, it doesn't specifically mention Santa Barbara, but there's a lot of Santa Barbara DNA in there. Um, reference oh, yeah. to T-Bowl, um, PCH. I think, was, it, was there a Lost Kittens reference in there? Or did I imagine that? I think I imagined that, yeah. Um, I don't think there's a quite a Lost Kittens reference. There's, I mean, there's, you'll appreciate the, the lyrical inspiration just for the, for the hook line. I mean, honestly, I was, it was, it was during COVID and I was out at Hammond's one day and it was really crowded and there was some swell. And I was like, maybe you have this too. I don't know, because you haven't lived in Santa Barbara in about the same amount of time that I haven't lived in Santa Barbara. Like I haven't lived in Santa Barbara since like the late eighties, since 1989, you know? So I have this funny thing when I go home of like, it's home and I feel totally at home, but I also feel like kind of an outsider and a carpet bagger, you know what I mean? Especially when I'm surfing. Like, so, and I, and, and, and I was sitting out at Hammond's, it was crowded and I was just, probably in more in my head than anything, just imagining everybody was giving me stink eye and, you know, snaking my waves and all that sort of thing. And I was kind of having that conversation internally, like, fuck you, motherfucker. I was fucking born and raised here, man. I'll fucking surf anywhere. I fucking, went. you know, like I knew that thing. And then I was like, oh, I should, that's, I like that born and raised. I'll write a song about that. And then, you know, nothing in the songs about surfing or whatever, but it, but it was inspired by that feeling. And so, you know, lyrically, there's like references that you would get like, yeah, like the T-Bowl fires. And, you know, the T-Bowl fires burned my car's house down, you know, her childhood home. And that's kind of what that one thing is is referring to. It's like, I don't remember where your house once stood because that neighborhood, I don't know if you've been up there since then, but it's just a different, it's like you have no reference point that makes any sense because the whole neighborhood burned down and everybody rebuilt and it's all rebuilt different. And it's, it's, it's like unnerving in a weird way, you know? Such a trip. But also like t- the T-Bulls, I don't know if you, I mean, I'm, of course you remember this being spray painted various places, but it was, but it was just such a sentiment of the, of that time that we grew up and you would see it here and there. And I've, I have a memory of it being spray painted at the T-Bulls, but I could be totally imagining that, but LA go home. Oh, always. Yeah. You know what I mean? LA go home was a very Santa Barbara sentiment, you know, in, in our childhood. Now LA bought Santa Barbara. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now it's, now Santa Barbara is a suburb of LA. <laughs> So, you know, when I was a, a photo assistant and then I started shooting my own work, it, it was it was really difficult to not subconsciously or even consciously kind of emulate the style of the photographers that I've been working with. And I'm wondering, like, when you set out to write a solo project, is there a gravitational pull of the Foo Fighters or is it just the opposite where, like, you have this sense of liberation and freedom where you almost want to purposefully explore genres that you would never be able to play with the Foo's? I mean, I think I've tried it both ways. I mean, I've certainly, there was a, there was a, a time early on when I was trying to like write stuff that leaned more country. Cause I've been a fan of that style of music for a long time, but hadn't really ever played it and found like my early attempts at trying to write, I would be like trying to write like a Buck Owens song in like Buck Owens language and, and that sort of thing. And I really, I had to get, a, I had to like stop thinking about it. And, and just over time, I think with every album, even my last solo record was more of like, like just sort of play what you're comfortable in, like or just not over. I try not to overthink it. You know what I mean? Like, it's like there's no rules with anything. Like if I, I could play like a country song, but play it with a big, loud, crunchy rock guitar in it, and it's you know who cares? Like just do the thing that sort of comes naturally to you. So I, I just try not to think about it too much. And I think like the stuff that I've been recording is is more a mishmash of it all. You know, it's like equal parts fucking you know 
rock influences and alt rock and all that kind of stuff as it is, you know, country and twangy stuff. So, you know, I was, I was looking back at your bio before we did this today and, you know, we've known each other for a long time and I don't think I ever really realized this before, but we both kind of started these crazy chapters of our lives, like almost exactly at the same time. Like you joined the Foo Fighters the same year that I started working as a personal photographer to Sean Combs. And, you know, it really, it changed my life in so many ways. You get to travel the world and, you know, it opened up a lot of doors career-wise. But, you know, as much as I was proud of those pictures and I was good at it, and I think I brought a lot to the table, I was definitely a supporting figure in somebody else's show, you know? Yeah, yeah, But yeah. then when I released my Hawaii book, it was like a real different sense of pride putting out this book about North Shore surf culture because it was very personal to me. And it was a project that I kind of manifested from the beginning to end, like all by myself. And it really had a different kind of sense of pride. And, you know, and I'm wondering, as a solo artist... When you put out work on your standing center stage or your names on the album, as opposed to being a supporting character in this huge machine that is the Foo Fighters, is there a different sense of pride and, and accomplishment when it when it's well received? I I mean I think you absolutely have a different connection to the songs that you write yourself, you know, than the songs that you sort of are a contributing member to. Um, you know, as far as like the sense of pride, I don't know. I mean, my solo stuff is is like it always feels nice when you get a good review or whatever. I mean, it's it's great, you know what I mean. But um, I try not to. I don't know. Like it's it's been these recent years in in Foo Fighters. I mean, obviously this year's been a, a terrible year for our our band and our you know Foo Fighter family and, and all that stuff with with Taylor passing, but. You know, the year before 2021 was in in 2020, even were like these these years of a lot of reflection. You know, with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and like the um, the year before was like the the 25th anniversary of the band. There was a lot felt like there was this this uh, a lot of looking back that you just don't do kind of in real time. You know, you you just because we're just always going. You know, and it's always this thing with this. Something, there's always all this stuff on the horizon. And when, when COVID kind of shut the world down, coincided with it being the 25th anniversary of the Foo Fighters and then going in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like, it just felt like this long, drawn-out period of nostalgia and being sentimental and looking at old photos and digging up stuff and trying to remember old things. And you just look back and you just go, fuck, man. Like, we have covered so much ground. It's just wild, you know? Like, you, you just, my life when I joined the Foo Fighters versus my life now is just like, it's unrecognizable, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't have any other ex- experience like that in my life, you know? It's, it's like your whole adult existence, practically. So it's really singular. Like, my, my I, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to answer because I try, I really try to not, like, I try not to let any of it be my I, my identity in a weird way. You know what I mean? Like when I look in the mirror, I don't want to look in the mirror and, and have it, have my sense of self be based on being a Foo Fighter or a solo artist or any of this stuff. I just want to be me and a husband and a father and, and the shit that's kind of like really, really important. You know what I mean? And all that other stuff's kind of gravy and it's great. But I try not to get swept away in it too much. But I mean, it's it's the two things are so very different. They're just... It's just night and day, you know, like my solo stuff, I, it, I, it always makes me happy when people dig it. You know, we played last night. We did a little sneaky warm-up show over at Penmar, 
Um, have you ever been in that that golf course, Penmar, no. over on on the west side of LA? Uh-huh. There's like a cool little like restaurant. It's like a big old golf course, kind of over in Venice, and uh, and there's a little um, restaurant, and they have these gigs there where you pay, play on the back of a flatbed, and it's just a bunch of people. It's like a pickup scene. It's like all young people like getting their swerve on, yeah. and um, and and you know going and we played like kind of like an unannounced thing because I'm playing at that Beach Life Festival this weekend, so. Um, we and we haven't played for a minute, so we needed to go have a warm up show. And it's just so it's it's such a funny thing. It's so different. It's hard enough when I'm going out and doing my solo stuff because you're playing to a room full of people, probably most of whom are just there because you know it's the guy from the Foo Fighters and they're curious, or but maybe they they probably don't know my actual music. You know what I mean? So there's that thing of trying to win people over, playing them songs that they've probably never heard. Most of the people in the crowd. But then you take that to a whole nother level when you're not even advertised as playing and it's like nobody's there to see you. And it's just young people like, yeah, yippee, you know what I mean? Which is, and it really takes you back to like, it's kind of like what it felt like, like you talked about the Lost Kittens. It's like that feeling of like going and you're just trying to win over a crowd of people. You got to earn it. And there's no, you're not getting any cutie points. And, uh, and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's hard, but in that, really kind of rewarding way. Like when we get people on the dance floor at the end of the show, it's like, it feels like you really, you know, you, it's like an accomplishment. It's a little small victory. You know, is there, is there something uh, refreshing about the scale that you've been operating on lately as doing these solo shows in terms of, I mean, obviously I saw you played um, at Grand Ole Opry, which must've been like fantastic, but you know, as a solo Uh, artist, you're playing in smaller venues, which obviously is more intimate, but at the same time, I'd imagine you're, um, amenities are not what you're used to <laughs> on tour with the foos. I mean, so oh, yeah. you know, is, is, is yeah. flying coach and staying at the double tree, like, is that fun or is it just kind of come with the, <laughs> come with the territory? It, it is fun. I mean, last night, like I, I knew what it was going to be cause I've played there before. So, you know, there's no backstage, there's no like bathroom, bag, there's no catering for the band, you know, there's none of that, like yeah. none of the fancy stuff. So, you know, I like throw my gear in the back of my truck and I, when I stopped by Ralph's on the way over there and I picked up some, you know, a case of water. Cause I was like, we're going to need some water and make sure I brought like a towel. So I'm like, I'm going to sweat and <laughs> need to have a towel. And then you're like stacking all my shit on top of my amp case to like wheel it in through the bar and like, you know, moving it around people at tables and like pushing it. And it's, everything's almost like toppling over. And it's, yeah, it is a very different experience. Even like during the show, it's funny. Cause we just, it was just us, you know? And, and uh, there was a point and I was like trying to, one of my guitars just went crazy out of tune. And it was like, I mean, I've been playing guitar for 40 years. I should really know how to tune my own guitar. But, uh, and I'm up on stage and I'm almost like in a panic because I cannot get my guitar to tune. And I'm just like melting down inside. Like, what the fuck is happening right now? How can I not tune my fucking guitar? It's crazy. But, you know, you get through it and it's fine. And you always got to remember in those situations, nobody cares. Yeah. They're like doing a shot at the bar and like, you know, it's fine. It's so funny. It's funny you say that because as a, as an audience member and I've, you know, I've toured with, with different bands and you get to kind of hear the, the inside um, post-mortem after a show of like, oh, that went horrible. That went great. And from an audience's perspective, like they don't notice the difference. And in some cases, <laughs> like I almost even appreciate when bands kind of like, you know, either have a false start or maybe like, cause it's like, I, I can listen to the album if I want perfect. I want to feel something that's authentic, you know? Totally. I remember seeing Frank Black one time years ago at the Palladium. It was the first time I ever saw it. Like they started a song 
And they just, the band, it just like ground to a halt almost instantly. And then they had, they just started it again. I'd never seen that happen. I was like, whoa. And they're pros. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. People, people love that stuff. It's like, you know, it's like when Dave broke his leg and we kept touring and he was out there in a, in a, in a cast, like that became a thing. Like people, I think knew that that was like, they were only going to probably ever see that once. It was going to be this little brief thing and it becomes, it it becomes a story on its own. Yeah. Uh, It was like when I, when I was assisting, I got to, I got to work on um, this Richard Avedon retrospective in London and they had these huge mural prints of like Abby Hoffman and the family that were probably maybe from the late sixties. And, for whatever reason at the time, somebody was like really pissed off and they, they vandalized those prints. They threw like mud or blood or something on it. That print in particular is like invaluable now because it's, it's got a history right. to it. It's got provenance. So it's, it's interesting getting to, you know, something that was a mistake or vandalized actually made it so much more valuable. Well, it's interesting too, with like perception of these things. Cause like, um, things have changed so much, obviously like with social media and everything, but even last night, so we play the show and this is like nitpicky, you know, musician stuff. But like I had my amp kind of elevated the way the stage was. And as a guitar player, it's the worst thing in the world. If your amp is like at the level of your head, cause you're hearing it directly and it's just tonally awful. Like so you that. wanted to come through the PA want, instead through the monitor or what? Well, you, yeah, it's, you, it's, I mean, it was, it was coming through the PA, but I'm just talking about on stage. Like, you know, it's a little, puny little PA. I'm just having a little vocal come through my wedge. So, and I had, my amp was just like too high and it was just bugging me all night. Cause it's just really harsh when it's like right there. And it's, you're just getting all that crispy high end. It's like really unforgiving sounding. So it makes you kind of second guess you're playing all night. You know what I mean? And like your every mistake is, you know, exactly. magnified, you know what I mean? And, and we're making a lot, or I'm making lots of mistakes, you know, cause I haven't played a solo gig in nine months or whatever. And so in my head, we get done. I'm like, you know, cool. That was what we needed. We kind of got the dust off. You know, it's good. You know, that'll get us in shape for this weekend. But then I go home and I'm sitting on the couch and I, and I look at on Instagram and all these people had posted like clips from the show and they're out in front, you know, and like some of them were like way back, you know, like it's like a big open kind of space and it sounded killer. Right. So whatever it was in the room. It's like, it doesn't really matter because it goes out into the, into the internet, social media ether. And it's like, it's a little bit of a fantasy, you know, it's like the angle of the shot makes it look like there were a lot more people into it than there were. You know what I mean? The sound is compressed. It's better. You know what I mean? It's like, it's the eight second clip that like, you know, like three seconds later you blew it, but the world doesn't know that because it just, it's imaginary Instagram land. You know what I mean? Like that, yeah. that shit kind of works in your favor. You know what I mean? It makes it look like, even like I've noticed that too with like, I posted a, a show that I'm doing later in the year opening for Social D, but it was like part of like a bunch of their tour dates. And it creates this illusion that you're doing the whole tour, even though you're doing one show. You know yeah. what I mean? People are like, wow, you're really getting out there, bro. <laughs> getting back in the van. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're hitting it hard, man. Um, so we had Mick Fanning on the show a while back, and yeah, you know, for anybody who doesn't know anything about surfing, if there's one thing they know about Mick Fanning is that he was attacked by a shark, and yeah, you know, we don't have two sharks, wasn't it? Two sharks, yeah. There was a shark yeah. attack. Um, this isn't specifically a surf podcast, even though we have a lot of you know kind of surf DNA in it. But I felt like when we had him on, it was important and pertinent to kind of to bring that up, you know, but I wanted to do it in 
kind of a you know delicate and respectful way and also to kind of have a unique perspective on it and so you know what we ended up talking about is how he talks about the incident and he was going on about how he basically has three different versions and approaches to telling the story depending on who he's telling it to and how comfortable he is or whatever and so you know with that in mind I'm curious what your experience has been like with what I would imagine an onslaught of questions about Taylor passing. And has that, do you find that it's been frustrating or, or triggering or cathartic? Or, I mean, have you been doing any press ultimately promoting your music and there's this huge kind of elephant in the room that either is or isn't addressed? I mean, what's that experience been like? It's been interesting because, I mean, I have been doing a little bit of press. You know, I, I had these, these two songs that I put out, um, were slated to come out earlier in the year. And when Taylor died, I, I, I pushed it back, you know, obviously cause you know, you know, it just seemed like it would, you know, yeah, I just didn't want to be like out promoting something and it, yeah, obviously. So pushed it back. And then when, when I put out, when I started putting the music out, um, it's sort of a delicate thing, you know, for some areas, I just said, you know, I don't want to do any interviews, you know, cause I expected, certain uh, territories to be, um, to, I don't know, more uncomfortable with that than, than others. I didn't really do a lot of print press and I, you know, told, you know, my publicists and, and um, to, to just that I would just prefer to avoid that topic entirely because I mean, a, like, you know, it's hard to talk about, it, even still, it's 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 hard to talk about because there's just a you it's just raw. A lot of, yeah, you know, there's a, it's raw and there's a lot of a lot of uh, there's just a lot of shit. You know, it's like when anybody dies, it's just there's a lot of you just go through all these different you know phases of grieving and 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 just what, how you feel about it, what you think about it is just sort of evolving all the time. But um, you know, of course, it comes up the th- the thing that. The thing that's one of the weirdest, I mean, you know, we're from Santa Barbara, dude. Like half the people we grew up with are dead. Like we've like lived through a lot of people amount dying. of people from our scene yeah, are dead. Yeah, d- disproportionate. But this one's very different, you know, like because of the whole public side of it. And, um, and watching, there's so much like internet sleuthing that people are doing, you know, and especially right after he died, all this, all these Twitter, you know, private investigators that are, you know, they absolutely know what happened and are sure of it. And, and it's all wrong. You know what I mean? That's wrong about everything. And all that's been really strange to watch. And people. Have you found people have generally been respectful with the way they want you to talk about it? Or has it been, you found it to be exploitive? No, I think people are pretty respectful, but I mean, there's this, it's made me reconsider everything I ever thought I knew about, you know, Jim Morrison dying or fucking Randy Rhodes dying, any of those, you know, kind of rock and roll tragedies. I understand people's fascination with it. Taylor is this big character and he meant a lot to millions of people all over the world. So I like on one hand, I get that fascination with it, but it's like, it's just, Every, it's like so much of what I've seen out there is so completely wrong. I mean, there's people out there saying shit like Dave killed Taylor by making him get the COVID vaccine. It's just shit like that. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, fuck, you're going to turn it into that? Oh, fuck you. You know, it's just that this shit like, I mean, I, 
I try not to pay attention to any of that stuff because, like, who gives a fuck? It's just some Yahoo on Twitter or whatever. You know what I mean? But I don't know. It's it's it makes you angry. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, so it's because that shit is disrespectful. If you have very to. very. I mean, but honestly, I mean, that's the outlier. I mean, I've I never I hadn't heard that. I mean, I've kind of been following it fairly closely. So I mean, like you said, there's always going to be some fucking Yahoo saying whatever because everybody on the phone has a voice now. You know. Yeah. I mean, there was that Rolling Stone article that was complete nonsense for the most part that came out. So I guess, you know, there's that, you know, but, the, but most people that I've encountered have been respectful about it, you know, or try to avoid it or whatever, you know, it's, it's. Uh, Do you find more people are kind of awkwardly not asking you about it? And it's just this huge elephant in the room or. It probably will be when we ever get around to putting out another Foo Fighter record and go back into the promo you know, boogie woogie and, you know, because yeah. I remember that when I joined Foo Fighters, you know, was, was in 99. So it was, it was a while after Kurt Cobain had died, but, but I would just watch interviewers like twist themselves in knots to ask Dave about it, but not ask. Try and like, shoehorn you know, it on somehow. Not, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was, and yeah. So it, yeah, I, I would think it would probably, it will probably turn into that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. So, you know, my father passed away in the spring and it's been, it's been really interesting and and strange to kind of experience the different times that, that grief kind of creep in on you. And it's usually not the most obvious times. Like it wasn't at the memorial or during the funeral service or something, but you know, the other day I found one of his drafting pencils in a drawer and like, Mm. I just, I lost it, you know? And, you know, it made me think, you know, you, you just played this this tribute concert for, for Taylor. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people in the audience and then hundreds of thousands of people watching on TV worldwide. And like you're standing backstage, it would seem like that would be the obvious time for you to be like overcome with emotion. But, you know, does the, does the nervousness and the enormity of the whole situation kind of put you like on autopilot? I mean, what was that feeling like when you first walked out and saw that crowd? Well, when when we very first walked out, um, I was like, just, you know, trying to focus, remember how to play the songs. I tried to like, just, I tried to just focus more on that. Cause you know, we were, we were backing up all these different people and, you know, you don't want to be the guy that fucks up the guitar solo for back in black or whatever. So I'm, I was just trying to like be in that space. But when we were walking out, um, I looked up and I saw one of Taylor's best friends, Hans, you probably know, know Hans. Hans. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I saw him. Still, like we had a little little area where you know guests were kind of up above the stage looking down, and I saw him and and he was crying, and that just that like broke me up, you know. Mm. I just had to like, oh man, just suck it back. I mean, yeah, it's it's you know you mentioned your your dad passing. When I remember for a long time after my dad died, it's you know you're sad about it, but you you almost like forget for a second and I would something would happen and I would have the instinct like, Oh, I got to call my dad and talk to him about this. And then all of a sudden it comes back, you know? And I remember that for years having that feeling or even like waking up in the morning and having, and you just for a foggy second, you forget that he's dead. And then, Oh fuck it. That's right. You know, he's, he's, he's dead. And that, that took a really, I still kind of have that sometimes with my dad. I still think about it like a lot, you know? And, and, just in the short time since since Taylor passed, and even like getting ready to do these shows, you know, just being at our rehearsal studio, 
you just kind of, it, it's like you just expect him to walk in the room or it's, it's still like, that's the part that's, that's really bizarre. It's just, you know, like you, yeah, you just can't believe it. You know, I mean, you know, it's true. You know, it's, it's reality. It just, I don't know when that sinks in for real. Yeah. Was, you know? was there, was there one part of that show that really, that really resonated with you that really kind of drove home like why you were there? Oh, certainly when, when Shane, his son came out and played with us, I mean, probably more than, more than any other, yeah. you know? Yeah. That was heavy. I mean, that, and he, that, that he's moment, such a mini tailor. It's you know? going to, I mean, that's, that's up there with one of those iconic moments, like, you know, JFK Jr. Saluting the coffin or something. I mean, just like an <laughs> I, iconic pop culture moment, you know? Yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was wild and he, you know, he just killed it. And so it was a, it was a, you know, it, it, it was like an uplifting moment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the one that, that sticks out the most, but really just the whole month getting ready for it. You know, there's so many of little moments like that, that just drive it home. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned seeing Hans and, and I found that like seeing other people grieving is a real trigger, you know, like I can kind of go yeah, along big time my day. Okay. And, but then yeah. when you see someone else's grief, that just really drives it home, you know? Yeah. Or you forget for a second and you look at your, you know, your Instagram account and you see a photo and you're like, cause now, you know, there, there's like all these people posting like old Foo Fighter footage and old Foo Fighter photos of all these moments that, that you forgot ever happened, you know? And it's like, it's sweet. Um, and, but hard at the same time. Bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll switch gears for a second. I want to talk about uh, Studio 666, which uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about. I loved it. I had a really, I really enjoyed it. There's a, there's a new movie theater across the street that plays uh, on Tuesdays. They do $7 movies. And so I went with oh, nice. my buddy Drexel, who's a huge Foo fan. We went and saw it together. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I, I was worth like at least $9. I got like $9, $10 worth of enjoyment out of that movie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You know, the, maybe one of the greatest experiences of my life was going to the premiere, you know, with my wife and kids. And yeah, of course we're all there and everybody's got a bunch of friends and stuff. And I was sitting in this row with, with, uh, with Cara and the boys and some of my friends and they were just like, they hadn't seen any of it yet. So they were just like, Oh my God, what the fuck are you doing? You're such a terrible actor. Why did you do that? It's like, I don't know. Well, that's I funny. tried my best. I think I have such a soft spot for any movie or TV show when people play themselves. Like it's just so, it's just a surreal right. thing. It reminds me of of like the Love Boat. You know, <laughs> it always have like right. Andy Warhol, <laughs> right. like playing Alice himself. Cooper on the Love Boat. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And yeah. but the, you know, the funny thing is, is, it's not it's not realistic in the sense. It's always more of like it's more akin to a caricature sketch that you would get in an, sure. at an amusement park. You know, and so you know, yeah. in that movie. You you cracked wise with a lot of jokes that fell flat. I mean, is that is that your <laughs> reputation with the band? Is that why that was written in there? I, you know, I I maybe I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's funny when you look at it because the um, one of the writers on the film came out to the studio for like uh, spent the day at the studio, and I think she was like doing exactly that, like trying to hone in on you know people's sort of like you know quirks and uh so yeah you know probably no surprise that i got killed off first (laughs) (laughs) 
I guess I shouldn't have left early that day. Yeah. How long were you guys in that house? I mean, did you, was, you were there for a while? I mean. Oh, that, I mean, that's actually the house we made our last record in. Okay. So we made the record and then they took all the stuff out and then came in and dressed it up to, you know, for the movie and made it all, you know, it was, it was already kind of a shitty beater dilapidated house. And then they like, you know, made it more so. It was actually in Encino. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, surprisingly, I mean, it's right in a residential neighborhood. I think it's actually since then, I think they, they finally tore it down. I don't even think it's there anymore, but, but it's right smack dab in like a fully residential neighborhood and, Nobody ever complained, and, you know, it's not like we soundproofed it or anything. We were there for months making a racket, so, yeah. So cool. Thank you, Encino. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, my mom, I got Sherman Oaks blood in me. That's where my mom grew up, so. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Sherman Oaks holds a special moment in my young adult life. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know where you were probably off in New York or something already at this point, but I moved to Sherman Oaks after living in L.A. for about a year and a half. And like moved in with my girlfriend and Steve-O and um, things just went south real fast. Like the whole thing, it just all unraveled. Uh, yeah, I don't think, I, think like, I missed that chapter. Yeah, I was like, not, I wasn't in a band. I, I, I started going to Pierce Community College. Um, I was, you know, yeah, I was just so, it was just this Wait, weird were little studying? Sick- that were you trying, were you like in accounting or something? What were you, what were you- yes, yeah, that, yeah, totally. Yeah. Cause I had gotten at this job that was a cool job. Like I had a great boss that was like, taught me how to be a bookkeeper. And he was like, look, Hey man, if you want to like, I'll pay for you to go to school. If you want to like really learn how to do this stuff. And I was like, had this moment of like, man, I could be an accountant. Like, and it didn't last long. It really, it just went, went south real fast. And then I moved back to Hollywood and, you know, the rest is history. Nice, nice. Um, well, we always like to end this podcast by giving the guests an opportunity to to plug a project that they're not personally involved with, whether it's a book, a movie, mm. another artist, a cause. Um, is there something you want to kind of shout out that uh, you feel is not getting enough shine? Hmm. What would that be? Well, I did just surf in a um, charity surf event thing at First Point last weekend for an organization called Surf Aid, and I posted some stuff about it on my socials. If anybody wants to go find it, what does what does Surf Aid do? I don't know, man. It was an opportunity <laughs> to go surf First Point uncrowded. They do some good stuff. I appreciate I read up your on candor. it when I agreed to do it, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the same. You know, every time you get offered, like, there's been like two or three or maybe four times that I've had that opportunity to go, um, like, surf in one of these, like, you know, charity contests or whatever. And, it, I'm, you know, it's for a good cost. But really the draw is to go surf uncrowded first point. Yeah. You know so, what I mean? I mean, saving the world is a nice plus, but you also get to drop in on Sarlo and not get stomped. <laughs> Dude, I was in a heat with Sarlo. No way. I'm not even, I'm not kidding. Yeah. He got the good ways. That is so funny. It's, yeah, that's a really tough situation. And it's, it's, I, I don't know, you know, I've, obviously I'm just a mediocre, you know, middle-aged surfer. So never surfed in contests or anything like that. And it's not like a real contest, you know, where anything's on the line, but it is such a weird thing. I don't know if you've ever done that, like where, you know, the format is you're on this, uh, like a four man team and you go out and the heat's like an hour long or something and you get to get two waves and then you have to paddle in and, you know, tap your, the next guy. Like two scoring in. waves or two waves total? Just two waves total. So 
you go out there and then you have to, and you know how surfing works. Like it takes me two or three waves just to kind of get into a groove, you know? So, and then, and then you're like waiting for the waves and you're out there and there's like, you know, seven or eight other people in the heat, which by first point standards is like nobody, you know, so it's fine. But then there's all this pressure of like, cause you know, ever you want that glory set wave yeah. and I've never gotten one. Never. Every time I paddle out, it's like I wind up going on the closeout scrap because I just like can't control. Like, oh, there's a wave. And I just go. I'm like, why did I do that? It's like a 15 year old having sex for the first time or something. (laughs) That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. Uh, You know, I I I thought of you totally off topic. I went, so I was in um, Santa Barbara for two weeks recently. And I got obsessed with like a like how to get to Padara Lane because it's like you can't really you can't walk like you basically can't walk there if it's high tide. And I knew that the mm-hmm. Coastal Commission you have to have beach access there like somewhere. And so I parked the car and I ended up finding this gardener. I was like, how do you how do you get to the beach? And like in broken English, he's like, oh, this way, this way. Like, dude. So he walked me down this like manicured gravel driveway. Right. I was like, wait, is he just taking me through the driveway of a house that he's working on? Down this driveway, you hang right. There's a door with a lock on it, which is fake because it's taped open. It's like a punch code, but there's no lock on it. What? And you open it up, and then there's like a five-foot little path that leads to the beach. And you get down there. And the reason I went is because there was recently a house listed on Padara Lane for $102 million. I was like, I got to go. Holy moly. Um, but yeah, it's like essentially a private beach because they make it real difficult to get there. It's crazy. Yeah. And and now that you've exposed that secret, we're going to get beat up by uh, Tar Pits Lokes. For, <laughs> no, there's no surf. It's not a surf it. beach. You get beat up by like some, oh, there no surf by, some yeah. by some like wealth manager or something. Like but what's what's the breakdown at the end of Padero? What's and I think there's like a um, like a drain pipe people walk through. I don't know. I never surf out there. It's just a big white sandy beach, but it's like these houses are insane. Yeah, it's it's nuts. I'll, I'll fish sometimes off the around the the point from there. Well, you know, where you get to it from the, almost like the Summerlin side of it. Yeah, yeah. But, well, Chris Shiflett, man, I know you're a busy dude. Are you, you guys are in rehearsals for the forum show? We are. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to head out there today and, and, uh, and keep on doing that. Is it so. going to be a kind of similar vibe to what went down at Wembley? Or there's going to be some surprises? Yeah, similar vibe, but a lot of different people, a lot of different guests. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be good. It's still, they're still kind of putting it together and I'm, Never really sure what's been announced or not announced, but um, but uh, it's going to be good. And I will say, so far, it leans a little more '80s rock, which you know, it's right in this guy's wheelhouse. Nice. <laughs> how, how long will it take? Can you grow your hair out between now and then? It's only a couple weeks I, away. Yeah, you know yeah. what? I I got like a short summer haircut, and I really regret it now, dude. I should have like got the extensions. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I definitely don't have time. I need to get like a good wig. That would be yeah. you, you, should, you should get a wig yeah. that's actually believable, you know, like a short, medium length wig. Basically get a wig that looks like what you looked like in 2001. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, I think the look for like the, um, I don't know if you ever noticed, but all these sort of aging rock veterans, eventually their hair's gotten a little shorter and like frizzier over the years, but they still poof it out. So like they get that, like, it looks like your grandma's haircut. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny thing that I don't know why it's like nobody's hair grows past here when you hit a certain age. Yeah. Well, dude, thanks for taking the time out. I know you're busy and um, hopefully I'll see you soon, man. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll hang in Santa Barbara and uh, we'll cook yeah. we'll get some waves. 
Can't wait to see you again, buddy. All Miss right. You. All right, Holmes. I'm bringing that back, by the way. Like, bro is over. I'm bringing back Holmes. Like, nice. I like it. <laughs> I like it. Do you remember CAC? That was a, that was no. a Santa Barbaraism. Whoa. That, that might have just been the East Side. I don't know. That wow, was like an early very, 80s Santa no, Barbaraism. No. Yeah. CAC. Dude, that dude's a CAC. I don't even know what it means or what the reference, and hopefully it's not offensive. Yeah. But, uh, Dude, you know. That sounds yeah. shoal. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when I used that on a post when I was playing carp and I used it? I sent it to you. I was like, did I use this right? You're like, no. Like, Damn. <laughs> Is my syntax for this, like, 10 block radius slang from 1990 correct? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, bud. I'll see you soon. Thanks awesome, again. Awesome, dude. All right. Take care, brother. Sweet. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.